This is Shakespeare Unbarred, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare, one play at a time. Today, the play you should never get excited about, it's The Merchant of Venice. Let the forfeit be nominated for an equal pound of your fair flesh. In sooth, I know not why I am so sad. In Belmont is a lady richly left, and she is fair. By my troth, Nerissa, my little body is aweary of this great world. If you prick us, do we not bleed? La, what heinous sin is it in me to be ashamed to be my father's child? I'll hold thee any wager when we are both accoutred like young men. <gasps> I'll prove the prettier. Then must the Jew be merciful. On what compulsion must I? The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. All right, as always, we're going to start off with a short summary. How short? This is The Merchant of Venice in one minute. Let's start the timer. Go. All is rotten in the state of Venice. Bassanio is in love with Portia, and, using his friend Antonio's good name, he borrows money from Shylock, a Jewish moneylender who everyone hates. Shylock decides that he's going to make a strange offer. If Antonio does not pay Bassanio's debt, he must forfeit to Shylock a pound of flesh. Bassanio goes off to woo Portia. At Efrather's court, he wins Portia's heart, while his friend Gratiano marries Nerissa, Portia's maid. Meanwhile, Shylock's daughter Jessica has eloped with Lorenzo, a Christian. She's also taken Shylock's money and converted. Blaming Antonio for all his problems, Shylock vows revenge, and when Antonio cannot repay his debt, he demands his pound of flesh. Portia sends Bassanio to Venice with money, but she and Aressa secretly disguise themselves as men and go to Venice. Portia cleverly saves Antonio, defeats Shylock, before she and Aressa return to their husbands, who are rather embarrassed to find out that they never recognize their wives. There's also a clown named Launcelot running around, but don't worry about him, because he's really not important to the plot. So, The Merchant of Venice is generally considered to be one of Shakespeare's problem plays, though not by F.S. Boas, the critic who invented the term. To him, the problem plays were All's Well That Ends Well, Measure for Measure, and Troilus and Cressida. And the problem was a morality or social question which Shakespeare hoped to address. It was all the other scholars who added The Merchant of Venice to the list in what was one more attempt to justify our continued fascination with this terrible, terrible play. The Merchant of Venice is indeed a problem play, but the problem is that even though it's a minor and unimpressive work, it continues to be both celebrated and produced at an alarming rate. Try as I might, I can find no justification for either activity. The Merchant of Venice is hardly the only play in the canon to crash as it tries to jump the many gulfs that lie between comedy, tragedy, and social commentary, but it is the play whose failure is the most acute. The Merchant of Venice cobbles together so many disparate ideas that sometimes I wonder if Shakespeare, in a hurry to fill a gap in the 1596 season, literally stitched together scenes from four different plays. I could say the same thing about a few of his other plays, of course, and when I look at these works, as with Venice, I see Frankenstein creations. They are theatrical experiments which have gone awry. Yes, yes, The Merchant of Venice has some fine poetry, two interesting characters, and one really good scene in a courtroom, but aside from that, Its only contribution has been to give the world the name Jessica, a name which Shakespeare appears to have invented, and which remains one of the most popular names in the Western world. The Merchant of Venice is based on two folktales of the medieval age, the one of the creditor who demands a pound of flesh, and the one of the lover who must answer a riddle in order to gain the hand of a lady. One is intrinsically horrific, the other is romantic and silly, I'll let you decide which. 
The story Shakespeare crafts out of these two separate tales is so thin as to be almost anorexic. Shakespeare was a fan of mixing genres, but in The Merchant of Venice, he added too many flavors to the stew, and the result is a sour and rancid concoction. Shakespeare's greatest weakness was plot, and the proof is in this messy theatrical pudding. If he had done away with plot, The Merchant of Venice might be tolerable. Instead, he tries to invent one at every turn, and every few minutes, it keeps getting in the way. Consider all the plot points Shakespeare introduces in the first half of the play. We meet Antonio, who has a mysterious reason for being sad. Lancelot, Shylock's servant, has a blind father who doesn't recognize his own son. Jessica disguises herself as a boy to escape her father's house. Lorenzo, a Christian, is in love with Jessica, who's a Jew. The reckless Gratiano insists on going to Belmont despite Bassanio's misgivings, and upon arriving in Belmont, Lancelot impregnates one of the black servants. Any one of these plot points could be the crux of their own play. Here, not one of them is ever resolved. Lancelot is never punished for his misdeed. The wild Gratiano arrives in Belmont and marries Nerissa in the blink of an eye. For all the racism in Venice, none of the Christians object to Lorenzo and Jessica's marriage. Jessica's disguise lasts all of 30 seconds before Lorenzo discovers her, and Lancelot's blind father is never seen again after the first act. As for Antonio's sadness, the reason is never revealed, which has led many a critic and slash or director to suggest that he suffers from unrequited love for his friend Bassanio. I'd accept this if Antonio's sadness ever factored into the plot, if, say, he tried to prevent Bassanio's marriage for some reason, but Antonio's sadness, once mentioned in the first act, is quickly forgotten by Shakespeare. In addition to the problems with the plot, the play is also poorly structured. It is Portia's play, and while she is interesting, she is surrounded by so many cardboard cutouts that the effect is like watching Nureyev dance with amateurs. The side characters come and go with the tide, appearing and disappearing, and only occasionally doing something of use. Launcelot's father vanishes, and there are various merchants and confederates who appear on stage solely to be mouthpieces for exposition. No sooner have we become interested in Jessica Lorenzo than they stop having anything useful to say. Once Jessica leaves Venice, she only appears in a few other scenes, one of whose sole purpose is to kill time so that the actress playing Portia and Nerissa can do a costume change. This scene is one of the most uncomfortable which Shakespeare ever wrote, given that Lancelot spends his time asserting that Jessica, convert or no, will never go to heaven. The climactic trial in which Portia saves Antonio is easily the strongest in the play, but it takes up only a single scene in Act 4, leaving us with a final act that hinges on a pair of rings which the husbands believe were lost, but in fact are safely in the possessions of their wives. This farcical ending is so different in tone from the somber courtroom trial that I now understand how audiences must have felt in the 19th century when it was tradition to tack a happy ending onto King Lear. It's jarring to be suddenly wrenched from one play and dropped into another. Of course, we've seen these fifth act problems before, I'm looking at you, A Midsummer Night's Dream, and we'll see it again in Henry V. Shakespeare's fifth acts have a bad habit of playing like afterthoughts. They can feel as extraneous as the extra words shoved in by a student trying to make the word count on their 2,000-word term paper. Portia, as I've said, is a gem, a wily and astute character who fights to be the mistress of her own destiny, and her courtroom scene is the play's singular saving grace. It is inherently dramatic. Portia's in disguise and could be punished if she's discovered. She could also lose Bassanio if he finds out she's gallivanting around Venice dressed as a boy. Antonio, meanwhile, is on trial for his life. Both lawyer and client have something to lose if Portia fails. 
The question is that whether or not Portia enters the scene knowing the argument she will make to save Antonio, or if she discovers it within the process of the courtroom trial. I think it's more interesting if Portia doesn't know the argument she will make. This provides tension and also drives her famed speech in which he begs Shylock to change his mind. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute to awe and majesty, wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. But mercy is above this sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute to God himself. If Shylock changes his mind, that she has saved the day with nothing more than the power of her own words. In any case, Portia continues to plead with Shylock, and, as always, he refuses. It's a remarkable scene, and yet, despite its power, it is thoroughly out of place, interrupting our romantic comedy to deliver a courtroom drama where the stakes are life and death. I adore this scene, I really do, but I wish it existed as a one-act play, unencumbered by all the nonsense that came before it, and all the nonsense that comes after it. Portia deserves better than to have her shining moment be so roughly shoved into a play where it doesn't belong. Earlier in the play, Bassanio discovers Portia's picture hiding inside an ugly lead casket. I'd say Shakespeare intended this to be a metaphor for the entire play, but this may be suggesting he was more self-aware than he could have possibly been. The astute observer will notice that I've been talking about The Merchant of Venice for a while and have yet to mention the thing that everyone always talks about when they talk about The Merchant of Venice. Shylock, who is Jewish, is the play's villain, and because he is defeated, it has become fashionable to conclude that the play is anti-Semitic. Given the play's many other flaws, I think its anti-Semitism shouldn't be all that interesting. If it was a good play that was racist, then I could see how we'd all have an ethical theatrical dilemma on our hands, but as Venice is not a good play, it seems to me the point should be moot. Yet, if we must discuss Shylock, and the play's continued popularity seems to dictate that we must, let us begin by remarking that Shakespeare goes out of his way to give Shylock motivation that extends beyond his Judaism. Harold Bloom remarks that, quote, We tend to make The Merchant of Venice incoherent by portraying Shylock as being largely sympathetic, end quote, but this isn't only our problem, it was also Shakespeare's. See, Shakespeare could have written Shylock to be more like Iago, the villain in that other tale about Venice, or Don John, the bastard in Much Ado About Nothing. In both those stories, the villains are villains chiefly because it's in their nature. But in Venice, Shakespeare gives Shylock plenty of reasons to demand his pound of flesh. Yes, he hates Antonio's religion, but he hates Antonio for other reasons too. How like a fawning publican he looks. I hate him, for he is a Christian, but more for that in low simplicity he lends out money gratis and brings down the rate of usance here with us in Venice. Antonio has gone out of his way to antagonize Shylock, such as that time on the Rialto when Antonio called him names. 
Antonio continues to bait and antagonize Shylock, referring to him as, quote, a goodly apple rotten at the heart, end quote. Not long after, Launcelot runs off and Jessica elopes with Lorenzo. As we learn from the two merchants on the street, Antonio may or may not be involved. Why, man, I saw Bassanio under sail. With him is Graciano gone along, and in their ship I'm sure Lorenzo is not. The villain Jew, without cries, roused the Duke, who went with him to search Bassanio's ship. He came too late, the ship was under sail. But there, the Duke was given to understand that in a gondola were seen together Lorenzo and his amorous Jessica. <laughs> Lorenzo, Bassanio, and Antonio are all friends. It's logical of Shylock to assume they may have helped Jessica escape, or at least they may have had knowledge that the escape was going to happen. Jessica has renounced her religion and stolen Shylock's money. The so-called heroes of the play have gone out of their way to systematically destroy Shylock's life, something Shylock himself can't help but observe. He hath disgraced me and hindered me half a million, laughed at my losses, mocked at my gains, scorned my nation, thwarted my bargains, cooled my friends, heated mine enemies, and what's his reason? I am a Jew. Shakespeare wrote Shylock to be unpleasant, but he also structured the play so that Shylock is driven to be that way by the world that surrounds him. Now this is dark material for what was meant to be a romantic comedy, for it suggests that people are not intrinsically evil that they become good or bad because of the way they are treated. It's a unique message, especially when it appears in a 16th century play, but Shakespeare buries it in the middle of a fairy tale romance where such a message is invariably lost. Modern producers who try to highlight this message do so at the expense of the comedy, which is what makes the play so difficult to watch. This so-called comedy becomes a disturbing tragedy in which a man is systematically taken apart until, in desperation, he ruins himself once and for all. And us, having watched his ruination, must then sit through another act where the people who ruined Shylock run around, fall in love, and get married. That Shakespeare was sympathetic to Shylock has been a problem for those hoping to use the play as an anti-Semitic text. Historian Rodney Simington explored the use of Shakespeare in the most anti-Semitic of all places in his 2005 book, The Nazi Appropriation of Shakespeare, Cultural Politics in the Third Reich. Simington begins the book by remarking on how fervently the Germans adored Shakespeare and how they appropriated him for themselves. Now, this was no different after the Nazis came to power, but performances of The Merchant of Venice saw a reduction between 1933 and 1945. Part of this had to do with its complicated portrayal of Shylock, which led to the play even being blacklisted in 1938 and confiscated from libraries. When the play was performed, the sympathetic material was drastically cut, including the most famed speech from the show. Hath not a Jew eyes? Hath not a Jew hands, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, passions? Fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons? subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer as a Christian is. If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? The plot was also changed. Jessica became Shylock's Christian foster daughter so that her marriage to Lorenzo would be in keeping with Nazi law. The Merchant of Venice has very complex social commentary attached to it, and this is probably what has continued to endear it to theater folk. But that only means that the play has become a mouthpiece for directors who want to use Shakespeare as a soapbox. 
Now, I don't mind when people use Shakespeare's work as a means of commenting on the modern world. Indeed, it's probably the best way to remind everyone about why Shakespeare continues to be so relevant. But the very nature of this particular play means that the social commentary becomes mixed up in a frivolous romantic comedy. Shakespeare is a good enough writer, that the poetry is pretty, and as I've said, the courtroom scene is really good, but ultimately the play is sloppy and second-rate. You could cut down on some of the comedy, which some productions do, but that only leaves a bleak story about a miserable merchant who doesn't pay his debts while his friends run off to get married. In any case, cutting the text means you're producing your play rather than Shakespeare's. And with so many other plays in the canon, I really don't think it's worth the effort. Shakespeare wrote enough good plays, there's absolutely no need for us to perpetually celebrate his bad ones. And now comes the part of the podcast where I talk about filmed versions of the play I've discussed. Given how much I hate The Merchant of Venice, I'm tempted not to recommend any of the adaptations that have surfaced over the years. But I have a feeling that you, faithful listener, might consider that bad form. So I'm going to discuss the 2004 version, directed by Michael Radford and featuring Al Pacino as Shylock. If we are like you in the rest, we will resemble you in that. If a Jew wrong a Christian, what is his humility? Revenge? If a Christian wrong a Jew, what should his sufferings be? By Christian example! Why revenge? The villainy you teach me, I will execute. And it shall go hard, but I will better the instruction. Now, Al Pacino has played Shylock several times, including once on Broadway in 2010, and according to the reviews, it has always been a sympathetic portrayal. This is how it definitely comes across in the film, which should come as no surprise since Michael Radford has discussed his belief that Shylock is one of Shakespeare's first great tragic heroes. So if you like your Shylock's tragic and your Antonio's pining away with unrequited love for Bassanio, then this is probably the film for you. Yes, it is a movie based on a bad play, but it's a very good movie, and that in itself is something of a victory. Pacino succeeds as Shylock, and Lynn Collins is a very winning Portia. You also have a very nice turn by both Joseph Fiennes and Jeremy Irons as Bassanio and Antonio, respectively. Now, the movie can't get away from the basic problems of the script. I don't think it succeeds in bridging that divide between comedy and tragedy any more than Shakespeare did, but in this respect, you have to admit it is at least pretty faithful to the text. As always, I'll leave links to everything I've discussed on the show page. Well, that's it for The Merchant of Venice. Next up, we go from the worst play Shakespeare ever wrote to his very best. Shakespeare reaches the apotheosis of his skill and talent with my favorite play in the canon. It's Henry IV, Part 1. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare Unbarred. If you like the show, subscribe, rate, and review it on the iTunes Store. For more information about the things I've discussed, visit the show page at www.joelfishbane.net slash Shakespeare Unbarred. And you know what? While you're there, check out the other things I do with my time, including information about how to get your hands on my novel, The Thunder of Giants. It's a book about two eight-foot-tall women who strive to survive in a world that is too small to contain them. And it's available from St. Martin's Press. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Unbarred. 14 plays down, 24 to go. Will Shakespeare as a play? Let's go and cough through it.